Okay, before we start, I'd like to make a comment about last week. I made some predictions about the presidential election. And since I've got kind of a big mouth, there's a lot of people that heard it. And uh, clearly I was wrong because I was, places that I read were pulling for Romney for a landslide and thought there was going to be a landslide for Romney. Well, clearly that was wrong. Clearly I'm not a prophet, never claimed to be. And I've already been uh, told not to bet on any horse races. Thanks, Mike. <coughs> And I, and I admit that I was and am disappointed in how far down the path the, our country has gone towards dependence and even socialism and communism, it appears to me. But, uh, and I really didn't think that we were that far down the road, but apparently we are. And I uh, was kind of hoping we could take a small step back towards freedom and personal responsibility and individual rights and things like that. But, but I can also say that while I was really disappointed, I, uh, I wasn't anywhere near as disappointed in nervous and distraught as I was when Bill Clinton got elected. Um, and I think now is worse than then. And I think part of it is that um, the older I get, the more I realize that it's not politicians that are going to save us. And I'm trusting in God that he is in control. And, and while we still, still may and probably will suffer as a country, it'll be good to see what he has in store for the future, knowing that God is in control. So keep trusting in God and praying for our president and other politicians and for God's people to remain faithful and trusting in him. As the Lord said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And if we keep trusting in God and knowing that he's in control, we can do that in spite of what we have for leaders in the country. So, um, all right. I, we have been t uh, talking, last time has been a while ago, but talking about the Mosaic Covenant, the, the Old Testament law. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, given that, a couple times I've, I've talked about some, uh, some of man's dumb laws that are on the books. In the past, I'm not so sure if some of those I read weren't just made up for fun. These I know from, uh, at least the, where I found them, they really claim that these are actual laws that are, that are on the books. So here's some of man's dumb laws. Uh, in Iowa, it is illegal for parents to exhibit deformed children in a circus. I, you know, it makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought you'd had to make that a law. But, you know, what do I know? Um, in California, it's a crime to pickle a spiny lobster. Um, in Walnut City, California, and of course, this would be California too. In Walnut City, California, a man wishing to cross-dress must first obtain permission from the sheriff. Um, in Tibet, monks that are wishing to reincarnate must first register with a government agency. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really pretty good. In Everett, Washington, it's a crime to exhibit a hypnotized person in a window. Oh, here's another really good one that I, you know, another one of those things you'd really expect. Why would this have to be made a law? In Oregon, it is illegal to strap children to the fender or the roof of an automobile. <laughs> Although I have to admit, I've, I've thought about that a few times. I wonder if it's illegal in Minnesota. In New York City, election laws prohibit candidate nudity. Again, it's New York City, New York City so they probably need that law there. And in Minnesota, the length of a frog must be measured from the tip of his nose to the end of his toes. D just, just so you know. 
Okay, I just knew you'd want to know that, so. Okay, we'll open uh, in prayer in a minute, but I'm just going to, last time we looked at the Mosaic Law. We, we read where the law was given and uh, began, began in Exodus 19. And as you recall, the Mount Sinai was smoking and quaking as God came to give the law to his people. The law was given and repeated, among some other things in the scriptures, in the Pentateuch, basically, the first five books of the Bible. Um, the content of the law, others have counted this, not I. Uh, they claim there are around 613 various laws in the categories of certainly the Ten Commandments, the moral law, other moral laws, religious and ceremonial laws, and then civil laws, all in those categories, and um, many, many chapters of laws for, the, for God's people, the, the Israelites. The purpose of the laws we discussed, there may be others, but certainly revealing God's holiness to man and, and, and also revealing man's sinfulness to himself. We see in the New Testament, I mean, we, we weren't, the law wasn't given in the New Testament, but we see in the New Testament it's pointed out that the law was there to bring people to Christ, to show us all how sinful we really are. Um, the law, the, it, it was clearly a conditional covenant. Uh, the covenant was an instrument of blessing if they adhered to the law and an instrument of cursing if they did not adhere to the law. That's Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Exodus 20, 18, and 20, the covenant was given as a testing so that the people would fear God and not sin. And it, it, uh, the law was also a divinely given pattern of life for his people. In other words, how a people, how God's people were to live in the land and in relationship with the, the holy God of the universe. And uh, so today, what I wanted to do is spend a little time talking about the relevance of the Mosaic Covenant for Christians today. And before we do that, let's open in prayer. Father, I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Father, I pray as always that you would, uh, you would open up our hearts and our minds to the truth, that you would give us knowledge and understanding and wisdom of the truth as we look at the Word. Pray that you would protect us from false teaching, help us to just look at the, uh, the truth of the Word and understand it so that we can know it and know you better. That's my prayer. We just um, pray now that you lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the question becomes, <clears throat> what is the relevance of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, to New Testament believers today? Uh, certainly the commands of the Mosaic law are a significant part of Scripture. And obviously... Christians today violate many parts of the, uh, the Mosaic law every day. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. A parapet is a low wall or a railing to protect the edge of something. And you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. Well, clearly we break that law all the time. Um, Deuteronomy 14.8 says, The pig, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat any of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. Well, everybody knows that bacon is probably the best food in the entire world. They even put it in ice cream. <clears throat> and, uh, and of course, there's many, 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 many more of these types of laws that you could pick out of the Old Testament that we obviously, well, I use the word violate, that if we were under that law, we'd be violating those laws. Uh, we don't follow those laws today, clearly. 
But New Testament believers today do tend to embrace some of the Old Testament laws, primarily the Ten Commandments uh, and other moral laws that are a basis for Christian behavior. And so then the question becomes, why do Christians follow some laws and ignore others? And how do they decide which ones are relevant and which ones aren't? Many New Testament believers tend to make that decision based on which law seems to be relevant. Does anybody see a problem with that? Um, This is a very haphazard approach to Scripture and surely doesn't seem like a proper way to interpret Scripture when you and I are reading it and saying, well, does that seem relevant or not? That's not a proper way to interpret Scripture at all. Okay, so what we certainly do know from that while the Mosaic Law is a significant part of Scripture, we know from the New Testament that the Mosaic Covenant is no longer enforced. Um, read Hebrews 8, or 8 and 9, the chapters 8 and 9 in particular. Um, read a couple of verses out of there. In Hebrews 8, 6 and 7, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for the second. And then in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12, is a, I'll just summarize, there's a series of quotes from Old Testament verses that promise that God will establish a new covenant with Israel. And then in Hebrews 8, 13, it says, finally, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Okay, so we clearly know that the Old Testament law has been made obsolete and that we as New Testament believers are not under the Old Testament law. So what, if anything, is the relevance of the Old Testament law to Christians today? 2 Timothy 3.16, as you probably, most many of you know, says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. For a number of things, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. All scripture certainly seems to contain, like, all scripture, which would include the Old Testament, which, by the way, is about 75% of the Bible. Um, So the relevant question then becomes how? How is that scripture profitable for us? How is it relevant? Surprisingly, I didn't realize this, but surprisingly, there are numerous theories on the relevance of the Old Testament law to the New Testament Christian. I read a a book um, in a class at Crossroads College written by uh, Dr. Joe Sprinkle called Biblical Law and Its Relevance. And in here, he summarizes six different approaches that people have taken how or what exactly is the relevance of the Old Testament. I'd like to spend just a couple minutes talking about some of them because many many of these I hadn't heard of before, and it's, it's good for us to know some of these thoughts that are out there in terms of how does the Old Testament apply to our life. Um, the first one I would call the traditional approach. And of those six uh, that he summarized, I'm not going to go through all six of them, but there were a number of them, two or three, I believe about three of them, that basically, <coughs> excuse me, that basically had um, elements of this traditional approach. So I'll just kind of talk about this. The, the traditional approach is really the main idea here um, is that the, there are moral, ceremo- civil, and ceremonial distinctions in the law. 
Okay, so this, this approach emphasizes those distinctions. I've mentioned that before. There are these different kinds of laws that cover different aspects of the, of the life of a, of a, uh, a Hebrew believer. Uh, moral, the moral laws are the things that deal with timeless truths regarding God's intention, ethical and moral behavior. For example, Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That would be a moral law. Civil laws deal with Israel's legal system. For example, Deuteronomy 15.1, I, at the end of every, oh, excuse me, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debt. That would be a civil law that, under, that they lived under. And then ceremonial laws deal with Israel's uh, sacrifices, festivals, priestly activities. For example, Deuteronomy 16.13, you shall celebrate the Feast of Booth seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. So there, those are examples of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. And the traditional approach aimed that the moral laws are universal and timeless, and hence we are still under these laws. And while civil and ceremonial laws are no longer applicable to New Testament believers. Okay, so the traditional approach, it becomes obvious then that you have to be able to separate the laws into these categories and know for certain which categories they're in. And there are two major problems with this approach. The first one is that these distinctions are rather arbitrary. And Scripture doesn't define these three categories. I mean, it, it gives the laws, but it doesn't really define the categories. So therefore, if you're going to figure out which categories these laws fall into, and you can't go to Scripture to figure out which categories the laws fall into, then where do you go? Something that's not Scripture. Does that seem like a problem? <laughs> For example, Leviticus 19, 18 and 19, it says, You shall not take vengeance. I already read 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then verse 19, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Okay, so that's Leviticus 18 and 19. Uh, eight, 19 comes right after 18, in case you haven't followed that. By these categor categorizations, verse 18 would be classified as a moral and timeless uh, law that would then be applicable today. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. While verse 19, not putting together two two kinds of things together, uh, would be listed as, well, I'm not sure what that is. Ceremonial? I, I don't know. It's, just, it's, not, it's not a moral law. Um, and I would dare say that probably 100% of us are probably breaking the two kinds of material in the garments that we're wearing right, right now. <clears throat> so there's no evidence in Scripture that suggests that there is a shift between verse 18 and 19. There's no definition uh, there that says, oh, and here's a moral law, follow this one. Here's a, whatever the other one is, a civil, ceremonial, I guess, law. Um, and shifts like this occur throughout the Old Testament with no indication at all from the Bible that suggests that I'm shifting from one category to the other. So you see the problem. If you're going to divide all these laws up into these categories, you've got to figure out what all these categories are, and the Bible doesn't tell you. And so that, that you know, Right there, that's enough to blow that theory out of the water, in my opinion. That's not a good biblical hermeneutic of, uh, of interpreting Scripture to say I've got to go to extra biblical places to figure out this kind of information. 
And the second thing that's wrong with this traditional approach is that if we did concede that these three categories existed, and I've stated that they do, I mean, you, you look at it and you, we put those categories on, general categories on the laws that are there, but then, then you have to, again, you have to separate the laws into the various categories is difficult at best. And I have an example here of, of uh, just a discussion of one, one law that is difficult to separate. And, and, that, and that this is from an article written by a man named J. Daniel Hayes, where he's talking about separating the laws into categories. And he says this, even the Ten Commandments, the clearest examples of so-called moral laws, present problems for the moral, civil, and ceremonial distinctions. For example, is the Sabbath law moral or ceremonial? If content is the criterion, then the Sabbath law, which was clearly part of Israel's worship system, is a ceremonial law and not a moral one. But if content is not the criterion for distinction, then what is? If location within the Ten Commandments becomes the litmus test for moral law, then there exists a simple system with only two categories. One, the Ten Commandments are universal and timeless and apply to Christians as moral law, and all the rest of the law is not applicable today. Of course, this is likewise unacceptable, for it does not allow believers to claim Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, as a moral law, then, using that, uh, um, using that definition which Jesus identified as the second greatest commandment. To, bull, to pull Leviticus 19.18 away from the verses that surround it and to identify it as a moral law requires that content play the major role in the distinction. If content becomes the criterion, then the Sabbath law ought to be classified as ceremonial. You see the problems that you get into. And this is on one that would be, you know, you, know, you could argue about some of these things that we would consider more secondary kinds of laws about not having two kinds of material in your clothing and put, building a parapet on your roof and things like that. I mean, the Sabbath law was a, a big deal. Furthermore, although many Christians claim that the Sabbath law is a moral law, practically none of them obey it. Going to church on Sunday, the first day of the week, can hardly be called obedience to the Sabbath law. Moses would not have accepted the first day of the week as a substitute for the seventh day. Also, obeying the Sabbath regulations was much more involved than mere church attendance. In the book of Numbers, a man was executed for gathering wood on the Sabbath. So the distinctions between civil, ceremonial, and moral laws appear to be arbitrary and not textually based. Okay, so again, I've sort of beaten that one to death because it seems pretty obvious that, that um, there's some problem, really some problems with that approach. Okay, another approach. <coughs> Sorry. The classical dispensational approach says that the Mosaic law is entirely nullified in Christ and is no longer applicable, including the Ten Commandments. In other words, period. There's no relevance at all of the Old Testament laws, what they claim. The, the Mosaic law is not a means of salvation, nor was it ever. I mean, it never was. I'm not claiming that it was. And, and, and they say also it is not a guide for Christian living. Now, the classical dispensationalist doesn't say that we're not under the law. They say we're under the law of Christ. Uh, the law of Christ incorporates some individual Mosaic laws, and thus it does overlap the Mosaic law some, but only if something is in the New Testament. Is it applicable at all? There are definitely some strengths to this approach, um, even with the comment about the Ten Commandments, because nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The Sabbath law is the only one that's not. 
And it does rightly warn against people getting involved, becoming legalistic. We've just been having that discussion when Charlie Pfizer was here and when Bruce was here last week talking about legalism, that this is a bad thing. And even letter, letteristic, it's a word I hadn't heard before, but there are people who are, have an unhealthy and obsessive interest in the letter of the law, thus missing deeper questions in pursuit of the very minute parts of the letters of the law. There is such a thing. Uh, so there are some strengths to the classical dispensational approach. Uh, the weaknesses of the classical dispensationalist approach, um, versus grace, and obviously get disagreement on this point, but I believe that law versus grace is really a false distinction. Some will point out that they'll say the Old Testament is law, period, end of story. The New Testament is grace, period, end of story. And they make that distinction with the line drawn between Old Testament and New Testament. And I would maintain that that's not true. Israel was saved grace from Egypt before the law was given. God reminds them over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, um, throughout the giving of the law especially, that he is the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and then he gave them the law right after he got them out of Egypt. So, I mean, the salvation we're talking about is not spiritual salvation, but we're talking about the salvation of his people from bondage in Egypt was performed first, and then the law was given. So that looks like grace given, and then the law given to his people to show them how to live. The law was really guidelines for those who were already saved. And those guidelines were given to Israel, not because Israel was such a great bunch of people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, if that doesn't sound like grace, I don't know what does. Um, he, he picked Israel because God picked Israel, and he loved Israel, and he brought them out. He chose them to be his people. He gave them the law, and, and that, that's grace. So there, grace is throughout the scripture, throughout in the Old Testament. So there really is no law versus grace distinction that is a hard line between Old Testament and New Testament, which the classical dispensationalists tend to claim. And the New Testament does not just speak of grace. It also speaks about the law of Christ. And I put a scripture down here that I was going to write down so I didn't have to look it up, and I forgot. 1 Corinthians 9.21. 1 Corinthians 9.21. To those who are without law as without law. This is the section where Paul is talking about becoming all things to all people. Uh, he, he's saying, I'm, I am, to a Jew, I become as a Jew, uh, as to those who are under the law, as under the law. Then in 21, he says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of Christ, the law, uh, without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. And, and as you recall, uh, if you were here when Charlie was preaching, he talked about New Testament um, 
There are many, many, many laws in the New Testament, and these are the laws of Christ that we are under as New Testament believers. Um, primarily, you know, Jesus said, when asked what was the, the first and foremost law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we are, so the New Testament doesn't just talk about grace, it talks about law. So anyway, I kind of beat that to death. There are problematic verses for the classical dispensationalists. We've already talked about one. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. If all scripture is profitable, then the Old Testament law is profitable. We need to figure out how it's profitable. We can't just say, not only are we not under it, but it is not there. It's completely irrelevant anymore, period, end of story. And Jesus himself said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It's difficult to define fulfilling the law as it being totally irrelevant to Christians today. So, um, and then there's another, other problems. The New Testament, throughout the New Testament, and we even read some verses today, quoting of the Old Testament verses numerous times, over and over again, and uh, that seems to contradict the idea that the Old Testament law is completely irrelevant because it's quoted, I, I forget the number, I didn't count, somebody, somebody probably knows that somewhere, but I don't. Okay, so there's a couple of approaches, and uh, this next one is a, I'm only gonna spend about a minute on it, it's called theonomy or Christian Reconstructionism. Uh, this is, isn't quite as, uh, doesn't have quite as many followers today as it has in the past, but there are groups of people out there who believe that we should recapture all of the social and political institutions for Christ and create a Christian culture. And one element of this is to seek to establish the law of God as the law of the modern state. So to have our civil laws, the law of God be the, uh, and, and this approach is losing popularity among Christians. And while I won't spend a whole lot of time here, um, there is something good in this approach. You know, it is, I think it seems to emphasize that Christians ought to be having a positive effect on the society around them. Um, but there's too many weaknesses of that whole approach to talk about here. I just wanted to throw it out there to say that there are people, you know, Christians who, uh, this is another approach they take to the application of the Old Testament law. We ought to take that Old Testament law and make it our civil law. And, uh, I don't see that ever happening. And then, the, <coughs> and then the last one I want to talk about, which since I've kind of said that the other three I don't really agree with, hopefully this one is the one I do agree with. Um, this one is called principalism. And this also is suggested by Charlie Pfizer. And the definition here is that we need to look at each law and ask what principle, either moral or religious, underlies the law. And how should that principle be applied in our lives today? Um, this man that wrote this article, J. Daniel Hayes, has a number of points on how to apply principalism. And before you go, I put these points on, on, a, on a handout for you. If you're interested, it talks about the, 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 uh, the points of principalism and how to apply them. He said, number one, you identify what the particular law meant to the initial audience. Now, that, this is the, we've talked in the past about the grammatical historical method approach to hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. This is figuring out in the context, what did this mean? And what did it mean to the people that it was written to? That's the way we should be interpreting scripture, period. So certainly that's the first step, is what did it mean to the initial audience, the law that was written? 
And as you're looking through the Old Testament laws, it's all written in a narrative to God's people, Israel. So you have to take all that into account. What's going on in Israel and what do these laws mean to Israel? And then you need to, another next step is then to determine the difference between the initial audience and believers today. Well, certainly there is a difference because we're not, no longer under that law. That's the primary difference, and that's going to be the same difference among all of these laws. We've got a different audience today. But we, all, we need to determine theological and situational differences between the Old Testament audience and the, and the New Testament believer today. And then the next step, which becomes sometimes a little bit hard on some of these laws, but that's the step where we try to develop the universal principle from the text. We ask ourselves the question, what is the timeless principle that underlies this law? Um, most of the laws can be done, I won't say easily, there are some that are, you know, that struggle with, and even today people will um, have many differences of opinion about, like the, the red heifer to, for cleansing for priests that got unclean. I mean, it, they, it, it, a lot of it boils down to just basic holiness, because you read a lot of these laws and it says, you know, be holy for I am holy, introduces the section, and then you go to all these laws, even these laws where you talk about not having two kinds of material in, uh, in your clothing, don't plant two kinds of grain in your field. Those are all in the uh, chapters that open up with God saying, be ye holy, for I am holy. And so, you know, the general principle probably is separation from unclean things, and that certainly would apply today. Um, okay, then the next step was then you correlate the principle with New Testament teaching. If you filter through... The New Testament and see what does the New Testament teaching say regarding that principle or regarding that specific law. And then the last step is you apply the modified principle to life today. And again, that is always the goal of understanding Scripture. We interpret Scripture not for the sake of interpreting Scripture. We interpret Scripture for the sake of applying it to our lives today. That should be our goal. Certainly understanding it and then applying it to our lives. So those <clears throat> Those are the, um, the steps. And, he, and so for an example, I want to look at Leviticus 5.2 and just quickly go through these five steps. And uh, on a, well, Leviticus 5.2 says, Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of an unclean cattle, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and, and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Leviticus 5.2. First step, what did the text mean to the initial audience? Well, the context of Leviticus, as I've said, discusses how the Israelites were to live with the holy God who was dwelling in their midst. How were they to approach God? How should they deal with sin and unclean things in light of God's presence among them? God was, was right among them. These verses are part of the literary context of uh, Leviticus 4, 1 to 5, 13, that deals with offerings necessary after unintentional sin. It showed how holy God was, and there were many things that made one unclean in God's presence. Even normal, non-sinful things made you unclean. You know, there were many things that made you unclean for, you know, till evening, but they were normal, non-sinful things in life. Uh, okay, so that's the kind of the meaning to the initial audience. And then you say, well, what are the differences between the initial audience and believers today? Well, as I said, clearly Christians, we are not under the old covenant. 
um, and our sins are covered by the death of Christ. And we now have direct, direct access to God through Jesus Christ, and so we don't need human uh, mediators anymore. So we're, you know, obviously this is a different environment we're living in. So then we go to the next question, well, what is the universal principle in the text? The universal principle appears to relate to the concept that God is holy. When he dwells among his people, his holiness demands that they keep separate from sin and unclean things. If they become unclean, they must be purified by a, by a blood sacrifice. Again, in the Old Testament, they needed to be purified by the blood sacrifice. So then the next question would be, well, how does the New Testament then modify that teaching? According to the New Testament, God no longer dwells among believers by residing in a tabernacle or a temple. He now dwells within believers by the indwelling Holy Spirit. His presence still calls for holiness on their part, however. God demands that we not sin and that we stay separate from unclean things. However, the New Testament redefines the terms clean and unclean. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him or by us touching it or anything like that. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is Mark 7, 15 and verses 20 to 23. Believers under the new are not made unclean by touching dead animals. Good thing for all you hunters. They become unclean by impure thoughts or by sinful actions. So the new covenant also changed the way that God's people are to deal with sin and uncleanness. Rather than bringing a lamb or a goat to atone for sin, a believer's sins are covered at the moment of salvation by the sacrifice of Christ. Our sins are, are uh, atoned for by the death of Christ, past, present, and future. The death of Christ washes away sin, changes the believer's status from unclean to clean. Confession of sin, however, is still important under the new covenant. 1 John 1, 9, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. I believe that is a verse that speaks about our ongoing relationship with Christ. Not, I mean, it applies to salvation as well, but once you're saved, I don't need to confess my sins to get saved anymore once I'm saved, but if I have a broken relationship with God because of my sin, I, I still need to go to God and confess my sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us, to restore the relationship that we have broken by our sin. So an expression of the universal principle for today's New Testament audience might be, stay away from sinful actions and impure thoughts because the holy God lives within you. If you do commit unclean acts or think unclean thoughts, then confess that sin and experience forgiveness through the death of Christ. And then the fifth one is, how should Christians today apply this modified universal principle in their lives? Well, there are buku ways to apply that in our lives. One would be pornography, avoiding pornography anywhere, wherever it is, and in particular, Internet pornography is probably the most easily accessible thing these days. I mean, that would just be one example of thousands of examples of ways. And this is the kind of thing where uh, people, obviously, we need to deal with our relationship with Christ ourselves. And there might be something that God is dealing with me with, uh, dealing on me with that is not a problem. 
for you. And I might have to be going to God and confessing sin and avoiding something that is unclean for me, but it's not for you. Um, that, there, are, there are issues like that. Uh, the strengths of this principalism approach is that it, it appears to affirm that all scripture is profitable because there are certainly many Old Testament laws and we can look at the principles that are there that can uh, be a guide to our lives today and should be. Um, it avoids the labeling issue. We don't have to come up with the moral, civil, and ceremonial separation, even though we recognize that there are laws like that. We don't have to go around trying to categorize every single law into which category it falls in. We just need to try to understand, given the context, what is the principle that underlies this law. Um, <clears throat> it recognizes how a new covenant and a new culture requires modifications because of the application is not the same to us as it would be to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Um, and certainly, the, as I mentioned before, the scriptures themselves principalize Old Testament laws in numerous places, in Old Testament and New Testament, as we mentioned. And I, for the sake of time, wasn't going to go through any examples there. But you, you can see places, in the, especially in the New Testament, where you will, uh, Old Testament verses will be quoted and you can tell, oh, well, I guess one example when, the, um, when Paul's talking about how you need to take care of those who are shepherds over you, and he uses the example of you don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Well, that's clearly taking a principle that they had to apply to animals that were driving their grinding wheels and, not, um, and, and applying that to now you have a shepherd over you and you need to take care of them. So he's applying a principle. So the, the, the scripture itself principalizes things. And even in the Old Testament, there are places where other scriptures are quoted and the principle is brought out. And there are other, there are other strengths to that. Um, and, and probably the primary weakness of the principalism approach is the, the difficulty at times in trying to determine what is the underlying principle. Um, but it's about the only real weakness that I see there. And um, obviously there are scriptures that to, to this day people struggle with and you, you don't get any real consensus. Uh, I was thinking of the example of uh, when Paul talks about being baptized for the dead. Um, I forgot even where that was. I didn't write it down. But uh, uh, there's, there, there are many different views on what that scripture means. I don't know that there's any great consensus on that one, so people still struggle. So, I mean, there, there are some difficult scriptures, and there are going to be some cases, perhaps, where the underlying principle, you might have a little bit of a, um, a disagreement about what that is. But the conclusion here seems to be that this approach that is the approach that does the best job of determining and applying the relevance of Old Testament law to the New Testament without getting the New Testament believer into legalism or letterism. And it keeps us away from the letter of the law or the legalism saying that we are under Old Testament law. So in the sense, we would agree with uh, the classical dispensational approach saying that we are no longer under any Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments. They are, we're, they are no longer the laws that we live under, but the principles that are embodied in them and the laws of Christ in the New Testament are things that should guide our lives 
as believers. So even though the Mosaic Covenant, as we have discussed, is no longer applicable um, as our uh, system of laws that we follow, there are many principles within it that, uh, that, that become guides to our life. Okay, so I've, I've read this quote before, and this is about when I, we were talking about the giving of the Mosaic Law, and I, I th thought it was good, so I'd repeat it. Uh, this is by a man named Ernest Trenchard. He said, the law reveals the sin that it is powerless to remove. The law is God's sledgehammer with which he smashes to atoms every fragment of human self-sufficiency. Every fragment of human self-sufficiency. The law pronounced the death sentence on the violator of the least of its precepts. The law cannot give life, but it shuts us up unto the saving faith which was afterwards to be revealed. Well, it has been revealed. And so it has now been revealed. I wanted to read, um, well, I think this is good application here. You might not think it fits uh, the discussion of the law, but this is, uh, again, familiar verses in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. To me, that vision, that, that is a picture of, of our relationship to God with the law. The law shows us that we are a people of unclean lips and thoughts and everything about our flesh is unclean. Live in the midst of a people of unclean everything. And for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, when God has given us, and, I, and again, I believe this is an act of grace that God gave us the law. Without the law, we cannot see the sin that we have. And being able to see the sin is what brings us to the point of being able to say, I need a Savior. Um, that, that comment about smashing to atoms every fragment of human self-sufficiency. We need to get to that point where we say, you know, there is nothing that I can do for my own salvation. It's only through Christ. And that is the, the real grace aspect of the law. If it brings us to that point where we see our need for the Savior and repent and believe in him today. So, in conclusion, let us not ignore the Old Testament law. I don't think we're trying to take the Old Testament law and make it the law of the land or any of these other approaches or, or completely ignore it as, as for anything. It's there. And I would suggest that the, the technique known as principalism is our guide in determining the relevance of the Old Testament law today. So. The Mosaic Law, though it is obsolete, still has much to speak to New Testament believers today.
So 